It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 148, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Will Reed and his wife, Amanda, returned to Will's home in Tupelo, Mississippi in 2010 to start Native Sun Farm with a walking tractor and an acre of production. Today, Native Sun Farm has 20 acres of produce in two locations and markets through its 200-member CSA, an on-farm retail store, farmer's markets, and restaurants. Will shares the story of coming home to Mississippi and learning to grow and sell organic vegetables in a climate where everyone said it wouldn't work. He shares how they manage the long, intense seasons, their strategies for marketing non-Southern produce in the Deep South, and his involvement in the policies and politics around local and organic agriculture. We also dig into how his farm team and community rallied during health and weather crises that came just as the farm was really scaling up and how Native Sun Farm has worked to reshape the land they farm on and the community they farm in to make organic local agriculture a resilient reality in Mississippi. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Farmer's Web, software for your farm. Farmer's Web makes it easier to work with your buyers, saving time, reducing errors, and increasing your capacity to work with more buyers overall. Farmersweb.com And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production, vermontcompost.com. And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. bcsamerica.com. Will Reed, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Oh, I'm glad to be here. I take it as a compliment to be asked to participate. I'm so glad you could make time to do it. I know that it's a busy time on your farm, even in late November there in northern Mississippi. Can you tell us about Native Sun Farm, where you guys are located, what you're growing, how much of it you're growing, and how and where you're selling it? Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, my name is Will Reed. Uh, I own the farm with my wife, Amanda. We started up, uh, 2010 was our first season. Um, we are young farmers, so I'm uh, 31 this year. And uh, we have kind of grown, uh, over the last eight years this year, we've grown about 20 acres of produce. And we're located in uh, the town of Tupelo in northeast Mississippi. We're farming in the city limits of our town of about... Uh, Oh, we're a town of about 35,000, um, but we're kind of the, the retail hub for the area. So, you know, on a typical day, there may be 70 or 80,000 people here working and shopping and that type of thing. And um, we market through a CSA. I think we, if we weren't the first CSA in Mississippi, we've been among the first. And we, I believe, are the largest CSA. Um, and then we also sell to about 10 restaurants to some farmer's markets, and then through an on-farm retail store. And uh, as far as what we're growing, like a lot of your guests on the show, we're, we're pretty diversified, just growing annual vegetables, and then we plant about an acre of annual strawberries. You guys are an organic farm, certified naturally grown, right? Yeah, we've, we've always used organic practices uh, from the beginning. We have never certified organic, but we've participated in certified naturally grown. I think we've done that every year we've been in existence, and we've considered organic certification, but just haven't really had the uh, 
I guess the benefits of it haven't haven't persuaded us to jump through the hoops and pay the fees to actually be USDA certified. But that's something that's quite different about our farm compared to most of the agriculture in the state. Well, one, we're growing crops that are meant for direct human consumption. Most of our neighbors are growing soybeans are kind of the big crop. We also see some corn and some cotton. But there are very few people that are using organic practices in the state of Mississippi. So something that, you know, that's that's one thing that a lot of people think is unusual about us. I worked with a client for the better part of a year in Mississippi a couple years back, and that was something that really struck me. I mean, Mississippi is not exactly a bastion of local organic food. How did you guys end up there, and how do you manage in a place like that? It's an interesting question, and I think, you know, it's good to temper that, that question with some optimism and um, you know, with all the challenges that exist here in the state of Mississippi, I believe there's a huge amount of opportunity for entrepreneurs and just for like the state as a whole to embrace uh, organic agriculture. I serve on the board of the Mississippi Sustainable Agriculture Network, and uh, we had a study commission showing that we're importing over 90% of our food into the state. I think the number was it's uh, $9 billion worth of food that we're importing. So there's a huge economic opportunity for people to be producing food intended for consumption by Mississippians in the state of Mississippi. But I guess to get back to your question of how are we doing this or why are we doing it, I grew up in Mississippi. Both my mom and dad uh, are from Mississippi for many generations back. And um, I really grew up here wanting to escape as quickly as possible. And there were just a lot of things that I didn't agree with that were going on in the state and that type of thing. So when I was 19, I moved out to California through a college exchange program and uh, got interested in agriculture out there and got a degree from a, a college in Northern California and met my wife, Amanda, uh, who was from Vermont originally. And we kind of hatched a plan to start a vegetable farm in the town where I grew up of Tupelo some really idealistic notions and ideas of trying to, uh, I guess, just seeing all the diet-related and preventable health illnesses that we're facing in Mississippi. So it's a, a paradox that I'm sure people in the Midwest can relate to as well. But just we've got tons of really fertile soil, yet a lot of the people in the state are dying from lack of nutrition or are sick from what they're eating. So it just seemed like there was a big opportunity to make a difference in the state of Mississippi. And uh I was pretty naive about what we were getting into in a lot of ways and uh, just kind of, uh, I would consider myself a stubborn person and just believe that uh, organic farming would work here. And um, I don't know what you encountered as a consultant, but we were told by a lot of the experts that, you know, that there, we just have too much disease here. It's a, it's a really hot, humid climate. We get about 52 inches of annual rainfall a year. So you could imagine uh, all that rainfall coupled with really high temperatures, just a, a wonderful place for diseases to thrive. And then, of course, with all of our with all of our heat and our long growing season, we have some insect issues that maybe others across the nation don't face or they don't face it to the extent that we do. And so I guess we've just kind of persevered and believed that this was possible. And we've, we've been really well received by our community and just really have an awesome little niche in the place where we live. Now, you started the farm in 2010 with one acre and a walking tractor, right? That is right. So 
I had been, like I said, kind of searching for myself and running from Mississippi. And I was just at that point in, in my life where I was a seeker and a searcher. And, um, you know, I got really uh, interested in agriculture out in California and um, kind of had a, a time or a point where I was I was starting to realize that uh, Mississippi wasn't all all bad and there were a lot of good people here and there was a lot of opportunity to affect change and uh and I'm entrepreneurially minded so um just just interested in coming back to Mississippi and starting a business and so I had had some time where I was kind of a, a apart from my family for a while and we started getting back together or whatever however you want to say it and I remember telling my parents you know like this is what I'm interested in doing I think that this is a a good way for me to find my right livelihood, you know, something that uh, I could sleep well at the end of the day and make a, a positive contribution to the world and on and on. And, you know, my dad had reminded me that I had never mowed the yard before <laughs> and they thought I was just, uh, they thought I was nuts. So anyway, I was kind of having this idea and I had been working in uh, different aspects of horticulture and gardening and stuff. And uh, I guess in my senior year of college, I met a guy uh, named Eddie Tanner, who was, uh, he was probably in his early 30s when I met him, and he was starting up a CSA farm, and uh, I really saw through what he was doing, the the power of a small farm as far as building community, just the, the wonders and the amount of food that could come out of a small space, and so coming from California, I guess with this this uh, sense of idealism and just really obsessed with like uh, Elliot Coleman's uh, new organic grower book. Uh, just really wanted to make this happen. And so for college graduation, my parents got me a BCS, which was an incredible and uh, very uh, thoughtful gift. And I grew up uh, on a piece of property that's 30 acres. It was mostly woods. There's oh, maybe three and a half flat acres here that were just unmanaged hayfield. And so they had the belief that I could make this happen or or it was worth Amanda and I giving this a shot. And so we started you know, on that first year with about one acre and the BCS. And it was like, uh, Chris, everything that happened was a miracle, you know, because we were we were being told by so many people that you just couldn't do this here in Mississippi. And so, you know, every spinach plant that, that grew and we harvested and then sold was just, I mean, we got so fired up about it. It was such a wonderful thing. And um, we've grown kind of incrementally each year to to the size that we are now. Well, tell me about that growth, because going from one acre in a walking tractor in 2010 to 20 acres in 2017, that's not a small change. Yeah, I think that a lot of times, or maybe all the time, you can see a reflection of a person's personality, I guess, in their farm. And uh, my personality is, um, I tend to like lots of pressure and chaos. And I guess also, I'm an impatient person, I would say, and attention to like extreme detail is not my strongest suit. And, and I guess the point that I'm making is, um, this was before I had discovered, I, I got turned on to like the JM uh, Fortier book by some folks that worked with me a couple of years ago. But this was uh, when I was doing this before I had really seen people that were 
aside from Elliot Coleman's book, before I had really seen people that were really growing so intensively on such a small scale. And um, at the same time, there just weren't any, there probably were, and I just didn't didn't know them, but there weren't really easily replicable models around me. I've heard some of these podcasts and, and we've had people work on the farm who grew up down the street from two or three organic farms or uh, you know, organic farming is the fabric of certain towns, and, and we didn't have that here. And so, there wasn't really a guide or a model of someone to look to and say, like, this is the size that you grow to, or this is how you do it. For us, it's just been each year we try to see what's possible. I think an, another reason that we have been able to grow quickly is I have taken on, you know, debt at certain times as far as being able to buy equipment to grow in scale. But uh, for the first couple of years, we were growing here on this three and a half acres or so. We were just kind of, of learning by doing and, um, you know, definitely had our share of snafus. I, I think the the first fall of 2010, it was, you know, I had read all these farming books and really, you know, I thought I had so much knowledge. And so I spread uh, a pretty good bit. I would say it was probably 20 tons over the three and a half acres of uh, like confinement poultry house chicken litter. I spread that in, uh, it would have been early September maybe. We came out and spread it with seed forks and shovels and everything. Just a terrible job of, of doing that work. And then I uh, planted all of my fields to rye and vetch, you know, just thinking growing these cover crops is the key to all the success and everything. And uh, that same year, we had also applied for the NRCS high tunnel grant, the first one of those that we did. So we put up a high tunnel. And so in the spring of 2011, I had a, a small like 12 by 20 propagation house and we just had it full of beautiful plants, you know, all ready to go out. And it just, uh, that spring, it just kept raining and raining and never stopped raining. And I sat there watching the cover crop just growing and growing and growing. And there was no opportunity to get in there because it was such a wet spring and turn that cover crop in. And so uh, just everything got really delayed in, in planting. Tomatoes are kind of like the, probably for a lot of people that you talk to or a lot of market farmers or gardeners, tomatoes are such a big crop. And tomatoes are like the pinnacle of vegetable farming in my area. Like we could grow the best Brussels sprouts and carrots and strawberries on and on. But if we don't have good tomatoes and we just kind of are, are blowing it in the eyes of our community. <laughs> and so that year we just, we had a really tough spring. The high tunnel kind of saved us in having a, a place to put, put tomato plants in the ground at the right time. Uh, but it's just been a series each year of, of learning by trial and error of more things going right than wrong, and then just constantly reinvesting in the farm. Uh, my wife, Amanda, worked an off-farm job doing uh, working in the Montessori school for a couple years, and uh, she kind of really supported us and allowed us to keep putting the money back into the farm and so on and so forth. And so we were we were growing, things were good, and I was starting to see, for, for my mentality, I know a lot of people are, like I know Ray Tyler is pretty close by me in, in Tennessee, and is doing incredible things on one acre. But uh, for my brain, the way I was seeing things was um, my three acres, three and a half acres was just, we weren't going to be able to make it uh, at that scale. Um, we, we didn't have enough space to do crop rotations and uh, it just wasn't enough room to grow the, the food, the amount of food that I was interested in growing the way I was interested in growing it. And so we, uh, we hit, we were on a land search and, um, in our town, a 
a lot of the development is happening on the periphery and uh, where our kind of home bases here is on the periphery of the town. And so all the land right around us is just kind of skyrocketing in price. And so we had, I had been driving past a piece of property just for about two years that had a for sale sign on it uh, right in the middle of our town in a residential area, low line floodplain ground uh, had been growing soybeans. And I had called about the price of the land and it was more, you know, than, than we could afford. And uh, by happenstance, you know, after driving by this for a while, I called, I have a friend who's a realtor and called her and, you know, just kind of uh, put in a lowball offer on this piece of property, not knowing that much about it, just knowing it was a good bit of space, you know, close by to where we could move stuff back and forth pretty easily. And uh, to uh, our surprise, we struck a deal on this piece of property. It's a 30-acre piece of land about three and a half miles away from where we started. And so we started growing on that property in 2013. And so that was a really big jump. You know, we went from uh, from kind of these tight quarters to having basically one big open ag field, probably the, the tillable area, maybe 24, 26 acres, something like that. Mm-hmm. So got all fired up, kind of took all the money that we had to get on this property and drill a well. And that first March, we got out there and and uh, started planting uh, broccoli, cabbage, a lot of the early field crops that we plant. And just like I was speaking about before in 2011, get that stuff out there. And it is just rain, rain, rain. And uh, we have three uh, daughters now. At the time, we had uh, one daughter. And I remember I was just so freaked out about uh, our plants. They looked like they were just drowning out there. And the water is just pooling up and pooling up. And so I I took the day off and we took our daughter to the circus. The circus was in town. And uh, I remember coming out of the circus and just thinking, like, everything was going to be totally underwater. And in some ways, it was. I was really frightened. We had moved on this piece of property, and uh, since it was floodplain ground, it looked flat as a tabletop from a distance. But what I realized was in a climate like ours, if you've got flat land, uh, the water has nowhere to go. It just starts to to pool up and pond. And so we made it through that year of 2013. We had used an NRCS high tunnel grant, a second one, to uh, Amanda had gotten one of those contracts. And we had, uh, I guess, kind of against the rules, turned that into a propagation house. We had a bigger propagation house. We had our high tunnel. We were into growing strawberries at that point on our our higher, sandier ground. And um, we kind of plugged along on that bottom land, uh, I guess, for, for 20 13 and had issues, like I said, with, with just too much water and nowhere for it to go. And it just created this system that was extremely inefficient because we were having to plant around the driest areas. So we would have, you know, some rows one in one running one direction and some rows running another direction. And it was just like this scattered hodgepodge of, of fields where we were trying to find the driest spaces that we could. Um, but we were really excited, you know, we, the business was growing, the farm was growing. We were, even though we were probably losing uh, between 20 and 30% of what we were planting to this water issue, we were still living our dream and everything was rocking and rolling. And so in 2014, 
at the time our CFA, I guess up until this year, has kind of grown every year. And I want to say we had maybe 150 CSA members, something like that. And uh, we had had a, a much better spring in 2014. Things were drier. We had a lot of uh, good-looking plants in the ground. And um, it was April 25th was the start date of our CSA that year in 2014. And uh, our oldest daughter, her name is Magnolia, she had been kind of having a cough. She was 19 months old. And so Amanda took her to the uh, pediatrician and I was in the farm stand. We had, we had maybe, maybe four folks working with us that year. And it was literally the first day of the CSA. We're packing up the CSA boxes and Amanda called and said, uh, there's something wrong with Magnolia. They're going to, uh, uh, they're going to send us by ambulance to Le Bonheur Children's Hospital in Memphis. And so I finished packing up, those CSA boxes, hopped in my van, drove up to Memphis, you know, just was obviously concerned, but just really didn't know what was going on. And so our daughter at 19 months old got diagnosed with uh, cancer that night uh, with a solid tumor in her abdomen called neuroblastoma. And uh, we got transferred two days later. It was a extremely difficult, hectic time. We got transferred to St. Jude Children's Hospital in Memphis. She went there intubated. So we're moving literally within 72 hours. We're on the farm plugging along to we're in the ICU in this children's cancer hospital with our daughter intubated in the first week of the CSA. And uh, right as we were in the middle of that ordeal of moving from Le Bonheur to St. Jude, uh, uh, it was an F4 tornado came through our town and literally went right through the middle of our farm. And so it was just like all the the bad news uh, of uh, hopefully a lifetime, but definitely the bad news of a, of a decade just kind of came there at once. And, um, and so that was like a, this huge thing, you know, uh, obviously a, a huge thing. And uh, during this time, Amanda's also pregnant with our second daughter. So we, uh, you know, we have, have that on our minds as well. And so our lives are just like completely transformed in that moment, that week, that that time. And so whenever I'm talking about this, I, it's good to, to say as quickly as possible, our daughter is doing wonderfully. Her life was saved by St. Jude Children's Hospital. It's an incredible place. She's five years old now. But for that year in 2014, uh, we had uh, some of the guys working on the farm, uh, uh, Cliff Newton, guy from Wisconsin that was working with us, and uh, Taylor Yow, who's a guy that's farming down in uh, around Jackson, Mississippi now, and uh, Sam McLemore, uh, a great guy who has a farm in Starkville, Mississippi. Uh, they kind of uh, they kind of really stepped up and took over our farm while I was, uh, you know, handling my my uh, the most important thing in my life, uh, with, with our family. And, um, we had just this incredible experience, uh, Chris in 2014 of, you know, we had been slowly building this community and wanting it to be greater than it was. And that experience was like this huge catalyst to where we had, and I wasn't here for so much of the time. I don't know the the real extent, but we had 
hundreds upon hundreds of volunteers come out to help on the farm and keep things going while we were, you know, there with Magnolia. And so that year was was really difficult, but uh, the farm actually had a successful year. And so uh, we kind of got through that. We were able to uh, build a new propagation greenhouse. And so we now had two high tunnels in the propagation house. And um, I think that year also we one of the things that I try to focus on, uh, the, the farm has become definitely bigger than Amanda and I, and it kind of takes on a life of its own. And so whoever's working on the farm, we try to, to use their talents as best we can. And so some of those guys I mentioned before, especially Sam and Cliff, were really talented with construction. And so we bought a five-bay gutter connect high tunnel that had been in a defunct nursery. And so we got it for a really good price. And so we took that down and put that back together. And so we went into 2015 with a good bit of high tunnel space and, um, you know, just still a, a passion for doing this. We had made it through the issues with our daughter and the weather event and whatnot. We had had the birth of our second daughter, Juniper. She was born in September of 2014. And then in 2015, I was talking with, uh, over the years, I developed a pretty good relationship with our local NRCS. Some of their programs are so incredible for small farms, especially in places like Mississippi where there aren't uh, as many people trying to access them. So anyway, I was talking to my NRCS guys uh, at the office there and just telling them about all the standing water and all the issues that we're having. And so they told me that there was a program available for landforming. And so in 2015, we were kind of hatching that scheme out. We had just this incredible uh, crew of workers uh, with us here. Uh, a couple that's now farming in Louisiana. They have Compostella Farm, uh, Madeline Yost and Timothy Robb. They had been farming out in Oregon for like seven years. So they brought just a ton of knowledge and talent uh, out to what we were doing really helped us kind of kind of move to the next level and so uh that September September of 2015 we had it all lined up i mean it was like it was such a puzzle to put it together of getting all the crops out of the field all the plastic pulled for this like small window when we could get this guy with like a it's like a 700 horsepower tractor to come in and do this landforming and give us uh the opportunity to still have time to come in and plant strawberries after he had done his work. And thankfully, Madeline and Tim had influenced me and turned me on to like the JM book. And so we really pumped out. I think we did like 200 CSA shares out of our three acres here, just did an awesome job. And so we did this landforming project where we basically divided our farm in half. So it's like two 12 acre sections and all the fields in each section have a fall. I think they fall like one inch every hundred feet. And so now the water runs, we use raised beds for everything. The water runs through the furrows out of the field. And um, that's been like, it's like we've got a whole new farm. We can cultivate when we need to. We are not losing nearly as much to standing water. Um, and so I guess last year was such a big breakthrough in that regard. We had a good year. And then this year we've been just kind of riding uh, on that wave and, and again have a different cast of characters but just an incredible crew working out here that just devoting a large part of their life to making this work so I guess that was a, a long answer but that's kind of the story of, of our years of doing this I mean what an amazing and challenging couple of years I mean so in 2014 
you, you guys get the tornado that comes through. You've got a child in the hospital with cancer. How did you change your farm as a result of that experience? I mean, you told us that you guys had some great help from employees. You had a lot of volunteers, but did you just come back and keep doing things the same way that you were doing them, or did it change how you were approaching your business? You know, I think that um, I I am still extremely passionate about doing this, but uh, we had the birth of our third daughter last December, and uh, one of the reasons why I have wanted to kind of grow in scale a little bit to be just a little bit of a bigger small farm is to be able to have more time away from it. Um, so I think that that experience made me realize um, how valuable uh, my family is. And, and uh, so uh, I would say one big thing is that um, I'm trying to have more and am succeeding in it and having more reasonable hours. Uh, so, you know, rather than just working every waking hour and when I'm not able to be on the farm researching more farm stuff, um, I'm trying to keep it more like an eight to five, eight to five thirty type thing. And, um, Amanda is just incredible. And, uh, it's kind of my rock through this whole thing it's allowed this to all, all happen. And, um, she, uh, we, we have our kids at home all the time. And so she, uh, she really kind of, kind of keeps me focused on, on, uh, you know, my management of time with the family and versus, you know, management with the farm. Um, and I think it was a good, I mean, I, I really like to be kind of in control of things. And, uh, that was like, I mean, it was like someone hit me over the head with a sledgehammer of, you know, you have no control. Like you're obviously we're at the mercy of the weather, but the tornado coming through, it just, it really underscores that. And then moving into the position of basically turning your child over to strangers that are part of the medical profession was just a huge lesson in submission and not being in control. And so I guess that would, that would be another thing too, if I, I would say that I'm now better able to let people on the farm take control of things. I mean, hard to do under any circumstances. And I think even I mean, maybe somewhat more difficult when, when you're kind of forced into it. Have you put systems in place that help you to let people have more control over different parts of the operation? We are trying to, I think that this may just be part of my own, the way my mind works or, maybe it's true, but I, it always feels, uh, I guess it is less so feeling like this, but most every year feels like we're kind of in like this in-between stage, you know, where like if we were just a little bit bigger, then it would be easier to to have more delegation. Um, so like, I guess to more directly answer your question, we don't have like a centralized chain you know like i think some farms probably have like a, a harvest manager and a harvest crew and like a washroom manager and a packing crew and then maybe like a, a field prep planting and cultivation crew that type of thing uh we don't so much have that uh we 
it's just kind of more of like a flow and an amalgamation of figuring out who's going to be on the farm each year, what their talents are, and then trying to kind of play people to those strengths or those talents. Things could be probably set up in a manner where folks were more in charge of like certain departments, but we're not there right now. Still an area that's got some room for growth and development. Yes, among many others. And tell me a little bit more about the land forming project, because bringing in 700 horsepower equipment to make those kinds of changes, I mean, that seems like a pretty bold undertaking. How did you know what needed to be done in that situation? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. It's an interesting, was an interesting project. When my NRCS agents first kind of floated that idea, I just uh, initially kind of walked away from it because it sounded just incredibly destructive to the soil. And I had kind of, after they had mentioned it, I thought about it and spoke to some different people. There's a guy I know in Mississippi that he's uh, he's conventional, but he is, grows, uh, I don't think he's doing it now because he's had some, some issues with sales, but just really good at growing like huge amounts of food, like growing three and 400 acres of potatoes and that type of thing. And he, uh, he had all of his, has landformed all of his ground. He had a business doing landforming and stuff. And so I kind of learned some things from him. And then the guy that did the work for me, uh, I talked with him as well. And um, I think he thought I was kind of a nut having a, a pretty small field in the scheme of his work that he does. And also like he said, he moved a lot less soil on our place than he typically would. I don't think that like a soybean or corn grower would go to the expense of, of doing the landforming on on the piece that we're on, but obviously vegetables are, are so much more uh, cost to grow in them that uh, it was worth it to us. So I guess just kind of learning from the experts around that I could talk to, and um, it was a, a sight to behold. And we, you know, we try to grow a cover crop in each field each year. And, um, you know, one of the amazing things about doing this work is, you know, after having been so fixated on reading about everything, actually seeing, you know, over this course of 2013 to this year, just how much our soil quality seems to increase and improve. There are some areas where they made like the biggest cuts that the soil, you know, was was disturbed a a fair amount. But overall, it's been just a, a huge blessing to what we're doing. And so we kind of took that after that was done, uh, we planted our strawberries and then planted a uh, cover crop on the rest of the land and took a page. I'm sure a lot of farms are doing this, but I, I learned about it from I think the Roxbury farm, one of their manuals, but we put in like a 12 foot drive lane every 50 feet inside. And so, you know, kind of talking about just how do we manage all of this? That was a huge thing to where now, you know, I think out there we have 46 uh, different fields. They're all numbered and they all have a sod drive lane to kind of make it easy to rotate the crops and for people to know where, you know, they need to be picking. And also it gives us a, a dry place, uh, kind of a dry harvest lane and hopefully is is helping the soil quality and that type of thing. And so with the raised bed system, can you tell me a little bit more about how you manage that on a year-to-year basis? Is it, do you have permanent beds or is this something where you're you're forming and, and kind of re-establishing those every year? Yeah, so I'd, I'd be interested to talk about that. Um, 
So kind of like the way our equipment looks on our farm is uh, I have three tractors. There's a 65 horsepower John Deere, a 95 horsepower John Deere, and then a Kubota, I think it's like an L245 cultivating tractor. And uh, so we're using those three tractors to do everything. And um, typically, you know, if we have a cover crop, we will mow it. And I was actually hoping to ask you about this. I'm considering purchasing a flail mower and wondering if you have any suggestions on that. But where we would mow a cover crop and then kind of disc it until it's broken down enough that we could come in with a chisel plow. We'll chisel plow it, rototill it, and then uh, we use a, a Buckeye bed shaper to kind of lift up a rough raised bed. And then uh, we'll come through... Depending on the fertilizer that we're using, uh, for many years we've used a, a really cool fertilizer out of South Alabama called Mighty Grow. Uh, we like the, the people a lot in the company and, you know, having a neighbor making organic fertilizer is something we want to support. Um, but we've had issues with the Mighty Grow of uh, we haven't found a spreader that can put it out at, at a high enough rate. Um, and so this year we've been using a, like a nature safe uh, fertilizer and uh, we're using a, I think it's called a Shaper Brothers drop spreader so we'll come through and we'll lift up the beds then we'll drop the amendments right into the bed top with that uh, drop spreader and then uh, we'll press the bed out with our bed shaper and for the most part it's pretty conventional tillage like we're not recycling those beds we're knocking them down with a disc and then uh, planting the cover crop or or rebedding the ground and um, it always seems like there's a better way I know Buckeye Tractor they're out of Ohio they have a an implement that is used I think for some more to, to have more of a perennial raised bed system one thing about our climate here that I know I've mentioned the rain several times and the heat uh, plants grow really fast weeds grow really fast and uh, so um, managing, you know, we try to do a pretty good job of keeping things clean, but, um, often it just makes more sense for us to, uh, I say makes more sense. It, it doesn't really feel like it makes that much sense to build these beds, knock them down and build them back up, but we haven't really discovered a better method. We're experimenting with some of the silage tarps. So trying to use them to put down over some, some, uh, residue that would exist after a vegetable crop and then seeing if we could, could, uh, use less tillage to form the beds up for a, a second round of planting. It makes sense to me that you would want to really be aggressive considering how fast weeds do grow in Mississippi. And I think for, I mean, for, for folks that haven't been down in the deep South and I had never been before I, before I got this gig down near Jackson, but um, it really, I mean, the stuff grows. I mean, stuff just grows and it grows like gangbusters and, and it puts, I mean, something like kudzu puts quack grass to utter shame in terms of what it's capable of doing. And, and I think that has to do as much with the, with the climate as it does with the plant. And I can see why you would need to be aggressive with your tillage to get rid of those weeds that you're not able to get rid of during the growing cycle. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Uh, the stuff does grow quickly. And, and I think as far as like our growth year to year, it's amazing how like one tool or one piece of equipment can just drastically change things. And uh, so I guess it was last 
winter last fall and I don't, I have no, uh, like vested interest in Buckeye tractor, but I just have bought several of their implements, but we bought like a, uh, a cultivator for the pathways. Uh, we use a plastic mulch on a decent amount of our summer crops and some of our fall crops this year too, actually. Uh, but we bought this, this, uh, aisleway cultivator and it's been just a huge, uh, it's just been a huge revelation, you know, and being able to, to take care of those weeds between the plastic a lot more effectively. What, so tell me what that cultivator looks like. How does, how does it work? It's like a, uh, yeah, it's like a, um, it almost looks like a plow foot that's on the Buckeye bed shaper. So like kind of like a, a wide plow shoe that goes in either furrow. And then there are two of, I think you call them spider wheels. Uh, those, those rolling, uh, wheels that kind of get right up next to the plastic. So there's one that kind of, kind of pulls the soil away in the weeds and then another one that hills it back up on there. And, um, you know, I mentioned kind of at the beginning of this, I'm not like a perfectionist. Like I, I enjoy progress more than perfection. We, we always have a lot to do, usually more to do than we can accomplish. So, um, you know, with this tool, sometimes we can, we can really get, you know, 99% of the weeds, but sometimes we go through and we get, you know, 82% of the weeds and it's still so much nicer than in the past of trying to come in there and either wheel hoe or try to like wrangle a BCS through the furrow and the tiller of the BCS didn't always properly fit in there. And, and then one thing, I know you had Ellen Polishuk on, on your show. Uh, she's a really inspirational farmer to probably people everywhere, but she's kind of like on the border of, uh, you know, in the South. And, um, she really, I was talking to her once and she was really advocating, um, just putting straw mulch in between your pathways, all the benefits for soil. And so we, uh, on some of our long-term, longer-term plastic crops, like we're yesterday and today, we're mulching our pathways uh, of our strawberries with rice straw. And, uh, so we, we try to do that also, uh, if we have the time and, and, uh, and get the straw and everything, but that little cultivator between the, plastic beds has been a huge help to us having the right equipment for cultivating the edge of plastic beds especially raised beds is just huge it is it is we can also use that same tool for cultivating the shoulders of our bare ground beds and uh so we're using on that Kubota tractor i've got a a three row it's kind of like a jang cedar but it's uh i guess like a knockoff version of it but we use that cedar and then a basket weeder you know when we're growing most of our root crops and stuff like that and then we can come through with that buckeye cultivator and, and get the shoulders and end up with a pretty clean bed of root vegetables. Are you making a separate pass when you're cultivating the shoulders of the bed versus cultivating the top of the bed? I am. I don't know. I haven't tried it, but I'm not sure if the Kubota would be stout enough to to uh, pull that cultivator. It may be, but we're usually you know, doing the seeding and the basket weeding with the Kubota, and then we'll come through and can do several fields with the alleyway bed shoulder cultivator. Well, and I think in some ways that makes a lot of sense because one of the challenges that I've always seen on organic farms with raised beds, especially when you don't have the plastic, is getting those edges cultivated because if your if your rows are not precisely centered on the bed or super consistent on the bed top, then it's hard to keep 
the cultivating equipment on the shoulder of the bed at the same time that you're doing nice tight cultivation on the top of the bed. I think it makes a lot of sense to make that in two different passes, whether the 245 could pull it off or not. Hmm. That's a good point. Now you'd asked about a, a flail mower and I, I do want to just, I mean, I, I have an opinion about everything and it's not often that people ask me the questions on the show here, but I think the flail mower is a really good tool. I mean, the thing I like about that, the flail mower, you know, and it's got the, for people that don't know, the flail mower has a, an axle that's horizontal. So the, the mower rather than, rather than rotating in a circle over the ground is, you know, more like kind of a, a rototiller action going over the top of the ground. And what it does that I like is it, it lays all of the organic matter, all the, the crop residue or the, the cover crop residue, it just lays it out nice and evenly, makes a nice even blanket. Whereas a, a rotary mower, you know, or a brush hog type tool tends to take all of that material and kind of put it in a windrow, you know, or at least most of it. And I really liked the flail mower. I felt like it was a good tool. And from a safety standpoint, especially you got kids on the farm, Will, that flail mower doesn't throw stuff in the same way that a rotary mower does. And that's, I think, why you see a lot of times highway crews will actually use those flail mowers instead of a rotary mower. Because if you hit a rock with the flail mower, it can get caught in the shields and it'll just drop to the ground. Whereas with the rotary mower, you hit a rock, that sucker is going to fly. Sure. The issue I guess we're trying to solve, I think those are are really good points, and we're trying to solve the issue of just with our cover crops. Like we like to grow cowpeas a lot in the summer, iron and clay cowpea variety we plant a lot, and those vines, you know, will just wrap around our our disc if we mow them with a with like a bush hog. So we're hoping the flail mower would would shred it up and kind of solve that. Chop it up into smaller pieces. Yeah, in fact, on our instruction sheets, we call them directives that we handed out to our tractor operators. We would actually tell them how big a chunks we expected to be left by the time they got done mowing. You know, because you can, depending on how fast you're going, you can change how big the pieces of residue are. So you've really got a lot of control over that, where again, with that rotary mower, you don't. It's going to hit it, it's going to cut it, and then it's going to move it out to the side. So I think you'd be real happy with that. Awesome. All right, with that, we're going to stop here. We're going to take a break. We're going to get a quick word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Will Reed of Native Sun Farm in Tupelo, Mississippi. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmer's Web, software for your farm. Farmer's Web makes it easy to work with your buyers, saving you time, increasing efficiency, reducing mistakes, and streamlining order management. Farmers Web helps you manage orders from buyers who place them online, but also from those that order by phone or email. Use Farmers Web to generate a product catalog for your buyers, allow your buyers to view your real-time availability online, and create harvest lists and packing slips for your orders. Farmers Web helps you inform your buyers of delivery routes, pickup locations, lead times, and more, while helping you keep track of special pricing and customer information. You can also download detailed financial reports. Farmers Web offers a free account type and a flat monthly fee on paid plans. You can pause, cancel, or switch plan types at any time. Check out a demo video and the Farmers Web Guide to Working with Wholesale Buyers at FarmersWeb.com. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of living potting soils for organic growers since 1992. You know, most of us did not get into this business to make the most money in the fastest possible time frame. 
and neither did Vermont Compost Company. And the funny thing is, this whole organic farming thing doesn't really work that way anyways. Organic farming works best when you use the discipline of business to guide your investments in the future. And that's what Vermont Compost Potting Soils do, without glitz, without glamour, but with the art and the science that creates an ideal living matrix where your transplants can thrive, setting the stage for success throughout the year. And while it's not all about the money, Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program can help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options. Don't miss out. Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program runs September 21st to December 21st, taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992. VermontCompost.com. All right, and we're back with Will Reed from Native Sun Farm in Tupelo, Mississippi. And Will, I was looking on Google Maps and I mean, that tornado you're talking about in 2014, you can actually see the damage. It went right through your farm. It went right through the middle of the property. And, uh, you know, we, it could have been much worse. Nobody was hurt. No equipment was damaged. I think we still, there's probably still road cover in the trees. It was a, a bad thing. Uh, as I mentioned, we weren't in town for it, but uh, it destroyed a, a lot of property and took down a lot of trees. But I don't think anyone was really injured in the tornado uh, across the whole town, which was great. So, Will, we, I mean, tornadoes, we've talked about, you know, kind of these, the, <laughs> the, the sheer amount of rain that you get. Tell me, tell me a little bit about what does the production season actually look like in Mississippi? Because, I mean, it ain't Minnesota. Yes, and Amanda is from Vermont. And, uh, which Vermont is such an incredible place. And, um, and we went to Vermont this summer, uh, and I was, we went in July when it was like 100 degrees and 90% humidity here. And I was like literally looking at farms in Vermont. I was ready to get out of the heat of Mississippi, but the season there is so much shorter. So our season here in Mississippi is good for a farming junkie such as myself. Uh, we start <laughs> up our propagation house typically February 1st, so we're seeding. One thing I want to make sure to plug in here is like how awesome it is growing tomatoes in high tunnels. Uh, I love growing tomatoes in high tunnels. I think it's really fun and, and you just get such great tomatoes. But uh, So we plant our, our first high tunnel tomatoes February 1st for like a March 15th setting in the high tunnel soil date. So to get to it, the 1st of February, we're starting up our propagation house. Um, we're typically planting, uh, we plant a lot of onions. So we're typically planting, uh, we, we buy and bear root onion plants. So we plant those mid-February. Uh, we start planting potatoes, depending on the weather, uh, mid-February into early March. By the 1st of March, we are planting in the field, you know, transplants we've grown in the greenhouse. Uh, late February, early March, we're planting like our first wave of broccoli, cabbage, uh, kale, collard, kohlrabi, those type of things. We're doing a lot of seeding in the field. Uh, we're seeding carrots in, in mid-February on into March, and, and sometimes April we're seeding beets, that type of thing. And then our sales season, we, we start our CSA season typically uh, with the onset of our strawberry season, which has a lot to do with the spring weather that we get, but it's typically going to be the third week in April. So 
that's a really intense time on the farm uh, for anybody that grows uh, strawberries, uh, especially growing them like as an annual on black plastic. It's just a really intense thing. Uh, our strawberry season typically lasts between five and seven weeks. So what's all happening at that point is like mid-April is the CSA is beginning. The strawberry harvest is going on. It's just like a huge time suck. We're planting like uh, the first wave of all of our uh, warm season summer crops. So like we, we shoot for like April 20th to start planting our field, you know, like tomatoes, peppers, eggplant. Uh, we probably will have put some squash in the ground uh, on plastic under row cover at that point. And so like the April, mid-April to mid-May is a really hectic time. And then uh, we're getting into mid-May. I mentioned before tomatoes are such a big crop. So we're, you know, staking time, sometimes keeping up with suckering on the tomatoes. Uh, farmers markets are starting and, and really busy with the strawberries. And then our high tunnel tomato season usually begins like the third week in June. And then like once those first tomatoes come out, it's just, you know, it's kind of the time that, uh, sometimes can like winnow some people out because it gets so intense with uh, just we're picking tomatoes every day. And uh, we've got like our wash pack, break room, sales area all condensed into one building. And, you know, by the time we get into late June, early July, it's like a maze of trying to find walkways through all the tomatoes. It gets just really <laughs> intense and fun. And so that season keeps on going uh, that season runs for 20 consecutive weeks. So that's like our first CSA season of the year starts when strawberry season starts the third week in April. It goes for about 20 weeks, usually till close to the end of August. By late July to early August, we're starting our first fall transplants. Um, our propagation house that we built at the end, end of 2014 is, I guess, the only greenhouse I've paid full price for it's an atlas structure i really like it and it's got a uh it, it's actively ventilated so it's got uh, two exhaust fans and then like a mechanical shutter on the back and an evaporative cooling pad or wet wall so we use that to kind of cool things off enough to where we can start germinating our, our first fall crops there in in late july or early august so you know things like our brussels sprouts and first cabbages and broccoli and so on and so forth so by the time we get to the end of that 20-week season, it's just like everybody has been through multiple phases of being burned out due to the heat and intensity of the of the work. And um, it's also like the whole thing of farming is like we're serving people, you know. Uh, my friend Sam McLemore, he calls this whole doing this in Mississippi, calls it a service project. And, and it is our business and my... Uh, one of my big passions in life but at the end of the day like we're trying to get something to our community that otherwise would not exist without us and uh so it's really fun and and awesome to be doing uh so we finished that season up we're pretty burned out the month of september we are doing a lot of cleanup from the summer so there's a lot of tomato steaks and flying to be pulled there's plastic to be pulled we're managing summer cover crops at that time and we're doing a lot of our uh, we're starting our fall planting usually in late August. It's something that can be hard to wrap your head around, like starting seed for Brussels sprouts when it's 100 degrees outside. But, um, you know, 
for us, it's probably like this for every farmer, but in the early season, you know, like in February, you're just like throwing yourself off of the cliff into this like darkness and chaos where you're, you know, rolling the dice again, you're putting in everything you got, you're putting in a lot of your life force and energy for the new year into doing this thing. And, you know, even though I, I have faith, like there's always that question of like, should the broccoli seeds have sprouted yet? And that type of thing. And so we get that twice. We get that same plunging off the cliff, going into the darkness with our fall season. It's so hot. You can't believe any cool weather crop could ever grow again because it seems like the earth is scorched and, and you know, so on and so forth. So we kind of make it through that period of like tumultuousness and start our fall season. Uh, the fall CFA starts the first week of October and it runs for 12 consecutive weeks. So right now we're in week nine of that season. And um, we've had some beautiful fall weather this year. Uh, it's been, we had a drought last fall. It's been dry this fall, but we've also had some rain. We've had a couple nights. I'd say we had one night that maybe got down to, I would guess, 25, something like that, 27, somewhere in that range that, that definitely has, has uh, beat some things up. But we've got 10 high tunnels. We're not making the most use of them all right now. We're not doing as well with that as we could be, but it's also, it's been a long year. Uh, but this time of year, we're, we're picking out of the fields like, uh, today, Brussels sprouts, carrots, broccoli, cabbage, kale and chard, arugula, uh, a lot of salad greens out of the high tunnels, fennel, that type of thing. And there, you know, if somebody was really just, either could pace themselves better or really could go gung-ho with it in this climate with some high tunnels or caterpillar tunnels, uh, you could definitely be growing 12 months out of the year. But um, for for myself and, and what I like, it's good to have like a definitive end to the season, try to get everything put away and cleaned up as best we can, and then, uh, you know, have a good bit of family time into December and into January, and then kind of get ready to gear up to do it again so your high tunnels i mean you're not picking tomatoes out of those in september but as as the as things are starting to heat up in july and august how are you keeping things cool in there yes yeah, so i am certainly not the world's best tomato grower my strategy with a lot of crops is uh, tomatoes we usually put out five different plantings um, so we'll do like a March 15th and, th- and these are actually putting the plants in the ground. So we'll do like a March 15th planting and then we'll do a big high tunnel planting. Uh, I think this year we had five high tunnels and tomatoes. So we, we did maybe two of them, March 15th, three, April 1st. And then we plant out a, a field of tomatoes, maybe about 1200 plants, something like that. We usually do that, uh, like I mentioned around April 20th. And then another three or four weeks after that, we'll set another field. So that'll be like mid-May. And then we'll set one out in early to mid-June. And that will keep us in tomatoes until the end of our CSA, at which point I really want to be done with tomatoes and (laughs) just glad I have them out of my life. But uh, we've learned this could be a good tip if you have, there's any other Southern folks listening, is like we start out, uh, I love Big Beast, it's my favorite uh, tomatoes, so we like to grow a lot of those. Get leaf mold in the tunnels that was still just like to grow them because they're so nice. But we we do our heirlooms and stuff pretty early on. So like the first two plantings and the first the, the high tunnel plantings, we'll do some heirlooms, and like the first field planting, we will. 
and then uh, we moved to more like uh, red tomatoes. And then for our last planting, uh, we usually grow uh, Juliet and uh, Mountain Magic. And uh, we tried some of the, there's some bigger, I think Skyway is one of them, like a heat set tomato. Um, but it just, uh, it didn't taste too good. But we usually, for our, for our late tomatoes, the ones that are going to be coming in, in like August, we're growing typically like uh, Juliet and Mountain Magic are two great ones. They're both small tomatoes. They're not uh, our market. Most people want a tomato that, you know, a slice covers a whole slice of bread. Those two are not fitting the bill, but they are very tasty, smaller tomatoes. And uh, even though we don't sell them, you know, like we sell the other ones, they are still a great slot for our last, you know, three or four weeks of CSA boxes and, you know, the restaurants having some tomatoes and that type of thing. Now, are green tomatoes a thing in Tupelo? They probably are a thing, but I don't really like to pick green tomatoes that much. I uh, I feel like it's just kind of like too much wasted potential, I guess. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. The fried ones are pretty darn good, though, I have to say. They are good. And uh, I think that, you know, one thing that we're learning along with our CSA members and, and you know, community is like um, a lot of things that we're growing are not typically like the main staple Southern diet foods. And so, um, you know, there's a, a whole lot of what we're doing. There's a lot of education involved in just trying to, to teach ourselves and also try to, to teach others and, you know, all learning together, but just on how to eat greens without boiling them for five hours and the benefits of uh, some of these different types of vegetables that aren't typically, you know, what you would associate with like the Southern diet. And um, that must be interesting from a marketing standpoint, because I know that was one of the real challenges that we had when I was working in Mississippi was, you know, kind of matching up the quality of what we were growing and the diversity of what we were growing with with what people were expecting and what people were used to eating and trying to kind of walk that line. How have you done that? Um, it's a, it's a good question. And, uh, we do try to, to focus on a lot of the popular items, uh, you know, tomatoes, strawberries, carrots are pretty well universally popular. I find that anything that people don't really have to cook is, is popular. So things that are sweet that you can eat, uh, as they are, you know, uh, like those three I mentioned and folks also like the, you know, kind of like the bag salad mixes, stuff like that. But at the end of the day, like we are here to serve the community and, uh, I struggle sometimes with saying no, um, to, to, uh, trying to, to do things. But, um, at the end of the day, like we, it's really hard for us to compete on, some of these staple southern crops that are sold so cheaply so we we try not to get into like the, the race to the bottom on some of those things and we've done different things over the years with the csa the, the first year we did our csa we gave all of our members a copy of the uh from your area the max sack asparagus to zucchini csa cookbook we've used the local time service one year uh, we have a great CSA member that trades us a uh, share in exchange for kind of maintaining the cooking blog. So kind of focusing on that educational component. And uh, I had the opportunity to listen to your podcast 
uh, with shared legacy farm and, uh, really, really got some great marketing, uh, tips from them and, and learned more about some ways that we could be better, uh, teaching our CSA folks, you know, how to cook certain things. I guess we try to temper, uh, especially with our CSA, like the odd items, you know, put in one or two of those. Like I think we have the, I know we have the, Hero Tondo or Black Spanish Radish in our CSA share this week, but, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not a box of black radishes, kohlrabi, arugula, uh, I don't know what, radicchio, like stuff that people aren't as used to cooking. It can be a, a bit of a challenge, but it's also fun for us to learn about these vegetables and to share them with other people. And, um, we kind of have a bit of a dynamic, like at our farmer's market in our town. Most of the vendors there are late 60s and above and, you know, not organic and, and just their cost of production is so low. And, and they'll be, you know, growing not in tremendous quantity, but they'll be growing uh, these staple crops and just selling them. You know, it's not a business for them. And so it's hard and be hard for us to try to get in there and compete on that in that space. But you guys are still going to farmer's market, right? How much of your business does that account for? That is a good question. Um, we are still going to farmer's market. We were doing three farmer's markets a week throughout a decent part of this year. And I was I was taking last winter some free business counseling classes through our uh, small business development center here in town. And uh, the, the business development counselor told me about Facebook Live, which if you're not familiar with it, uh, you can have a Facebook account for your farm. And uh, I have a smartphone. You can do live videos right off of your phone. And so it sounded kind of like a silly thing, but I, you know, thought, yeah, I'd give it a shot. And so we started doing um, these Facebook Live videos. They don't get done every day, but we try to do them, you know, as many days a week as we can. And so we started this year doing the Facebook live videos. Uh, people became interested and fascinated with it and had a good many folks watching the videos each day. And so we started using those videos to drive folks to our storefront. And uh, one thing about our farmer's market here in our local community is it starts at 6 a.m. on Saturday. Oh, my and, gosh. Uh, <laughs> It's just so early, you know, and, and so we've got this farm crew. We don't have just like a set market crew. Everybody kind of does a bit of everything, which I realized has some inefficiencies, but it's also fun. And, you know, we're all kind of on the same ship together. So we all try to do a little bit of, of each aspect. But uh, we were just like getting really burned out on doing this market that's so early in the morning. And uh, I, I like going because it was part of the community. I have a good relationship with a lot of the older vendors there. But we decided to kind of use our interest that we had generated on Facebook and start driving, started to drive people out to our retail store. And we open at 10 on Saturdays. And uh, and so that really took off this year. We had just a, a lot of folks coming through there. And so we dropped our, our local farmer's market. Um, but uh, to answer the question, the farmer's market is not a huge component of our of our sales. Um, typically, the CSA has been, uh, we kind of lay it out where the CSA will uh, cover, cover the bills. So, all, you know, all of our overhead and labor and everything on the farm. And then 
Um, you know, it's not an exact formula, but we try to plan about 30% overage of everything to hedge our bet. You know, we, we've, we've never, we've always had been able to have full CSA boxes. And, and so we, we plant that overage and if it's a good year, uh, that kind of becomes the money that can then be reinvested into the farm. And if it's not such a good year, you know, we have those losses, but we still are there for our CSA folks. So, um, so most of our business is, is the CSA. And then um, this year we, we did a lot of sales through our farm stand and, and then uh, the restaurants have, have grown a lot this fall, uh, but they haven't typically been a huge part of it. And then also the farmer's market, it, it depends on the day. Uh, some days I want to, if we could just get to, I, I think our land base and my appetite for work could, um, could sustain about 400 CSA members. So some days, you know, I wish if we could just get those members and only do CSA. Uh, but the other idea that we're trying to hatch right now, and this is why I had originally contacted you, is uh, our retail space here. Um, even though we're in the city, we're on like the cusp of urban and rural. A couple years ago, uh, the city put in like a five-lane, four-lane road uh, that it completes like a loop around our town. And so when that road came in, that put our retail space and, and washroom and everything about two miles from like the main area of commerce in our town so like near the grocery stores and the mall and everything like that and um that kind of with our facebook videos and just having a lot of interest and having been on the sustainable ag network and just been been able to network with with all of this uh, a great thing about the state of mississippi is like all of us who are doing this type of work like we're all you know we're farmers, so we don't really see each other that much, but we're all really on the same team. So I've got a, a lot of friends and people that are producing, uh, you know, whether it's dairy or meat or, you know, sorghum or grain, that type of thing. And so uh have this idea of starting like a local food store where we're only carrying agricultural products and within a 400 mile radius. So I guess for this, for this rant to continue, uh, my land that's in the floodplain, I had a guy recently gift me uh, about two acres adjacent to it that's not in the floodplain. And so we're considering building a packing shed there and then turning our kind of current packing area into retail space for the store and being like a, a place for people to come out and, and shop for, you know, their groceries each week and know that everything that, that they're getting is, is contributing to the local economy and and local farmers and, and that type of thing. Um, and then the, the challenge there becomes like, and we've seen it this year is the CSA. I don't, I don't know that we could exist without the CSA and I enjoy the job satisfaction of it. And we get into a position of starting to compete with ourselves. And so like we'll lose CSA members to people that are thinking that they could just come by whenever they want and get what they want. And so we we're trying to navigate that part of it. Yeah, I think there's a huge amount of potential for you guys being, you know, kind of right on the edge of the development, kind of having this sort of in-town presence and this on-the-edge-of-town presence. It, it seems like something that gives you just a huge amount of potential for developing, you know, retail as well as staying really connected with your customer base. Yeah, this whole thing, I think, looks definitely different than Amanda and I would have envisioned it. We don't live on the farm. Uh, we've got these two places that are kind of spread apart. It's all in a, you know, 
somewhat of an urban area. And so it's not kind of like the vision of like the farmhouse nestled down along gravel road and everything there all centralized. But we, this is what we piece together and it, it's fun and has a lot of advantages. And um, yeah, like you said, being able to be connected to people here closely and having children, it's nice to not be in a location that's too far out away from people. Well, I noticed as I was, you know, poaching around on your Facebook and your Instagram that you were recently in Washington, D.C. for the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition's Farmer Fly-In. Can you tell me a little bit about that undertaking and, and what you were talking about and what you feel are the primary issues facing young local organic farmers right now? That's a big question. Um, I was there with the uh, with NSAC, as you mentioned, the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. And uh, ultimately, the reason that I was there or got the opportunity to go was because of our uh, executive director of our uh, Mississippi Sustainable Agriculture Network, Daniel Doyle. And Daniel had uh, introduced me to the folks over there in SAC. And so they were doing their farmer fly in. I think there were 17 people that they flew in from across the country. Uh, and the, the, the reason that they flew us in was... Um, I'm I'm not too versed. I, I was really felt like uh, lightweight. I was there with some incredible people, and um, the farm bill is supposed to get passed every four years, and so we're due for a a new farm bill to be passed next September. And um, so some of our Senator Thad Cochran and my representative from my district Trent Kelly, they both are involved in agriculture at the congressional level, and so uh, Insac had, had brought me there to try to help ensure that some programs that are of benefit to uh, small farmers and local food producers were kept as a part of the farm bill. So it was a it was an awesome experience. I had never done anything like that before. I have typically thought of myself as more of a grassroots person, but it made me realize that as young farmers, small farmers, you know, we, we need to have our voice heard. And INSAC is a, a great voice for us, I think. You know, our from Mississippi, my senator and representative that I spoke to, they both seemed really receptive to what I was saying. And, um, you know, I don't think being in favor of local food, really, I don't see how it could have any political blowback. One of the things that the marker bill that we were promoting uh, on behalf of INSAC, one of the things that it was uh, requesting funding for was some funds to be able to set up a study proving or further proving the health benefits of local food. And so with our farm, I think that our our next big breakthrough, and I'm inspired by, uh, I learned about this at the Southern SOG Conference, an awesome conference uh, for any Southern farmers I would recommend going, but uh, it was in Lexington, Kentucky last year. I learned about the Bluegrass Harvest, Bluegrass Harvest Group there. And they uh, had worked to get health insurers and large employers in the state of Kentucky to subsidize CSA shares for their members. So like their state health insurance company will give people a discount on their monthly premium if they belong to a CSA. And so, uh, so that's something that I think could have a huge impact or benefit on local food production. And, and we're trying to, my sister is working with me, we're trying to talk with some of our larger employers. Toyota and one of the banks locally are the, the two ones we're working on right now 
to try and see if we could get them to subsidize CSA membership for some of their workers and have a drop site at the place of business. So a guy that was a guest on the show who I am friends with on Instagram, I recognized him. He was at the Farm of Lion. Dave, I forget his last name, but he has a Sassafras Creek Farm. Yep, Dave Polk. Dave Polk. Yeah, what an awesome guy and incredible farmer. He gave me, he taught me how to grow better potatoes over the phone. And so I recognized him there in person from Instagram. Kind of a funny moment. But yeah, INSAC is an awesome organization. I am by, I'm no expert in agricultural policy, but it was a just an incredible opportunity to go up there and speak to our legislators. Um, but I guess the, the things that I think could help us, um, I have some friends that are poultry producers in Mississippi. Uh, this is, I guess, maybe more on the state than the federal level, but uh, confinement poultry production is like a huge part of our state's economy. And so the laws for small poultry producers, got some friends with Beaver Dam Farm here in Mississippi that have been really stymied by our state government. So easing up some of those restrictions will be great, you know, making sure that the FISMA regulations are not too onerous for small farmers. And then uh, some of the big things for me, and I guess I've kind of taken them for granted, are these programs through the NRCS, uh, the Natural Resource Conservation Service. So I know I've mentioned several things, the high tunnel grants, uh, we've been able to do that. Several times we've drilled a well, done the land leveling, we've had money for cover crop seed and uh, organic pest management, on and on. Uh, these little things that in the, the scheme of things are really, really like almost infinitesimal part of the uh, farm bill pie can really make a big difference for, you know, young farmers, local food producers, organic farmers, kind of that that segment. So being able to go up there and introduce myself to our state politicians and let them know that, you know, hey, I exist and this is something that really benefits me and the economy and the health of the state. Really awesome experience. With that, we're going to turn to our lightning round. First, we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor. This lightning round and perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are real farming equipment for real farmers. And with PTO-driven attachments like rototillers, flail mowers, rotary plows, power harrows, log splitters, snow throwers, even a utility trailer and a new water transfer pump, you've got the tools you need to get the jobs done across the farm and across the homestead. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions for mowing and tilling before we finally got smart and bought a BCS. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, that BCS tackled jobs that we simply couldn't do with our larger machines, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Plus, they're gear-driven for years and years of dependable service. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. Will, what's your favorite tool on the farm? My favorite tool right now, this is a new tool that we've gotten this year, is an undercutter bar. Uh, we also got it from Buckeye Tractor. And uh, we, we put that on our chisel plow frame, and uh, we've used that this fall. We, we dug about an acre of sweet potatoes with it, uh, which was a lot of work, but a lot better than the alternative. And we're currently digging uh, winter storage carrots, and it's just, uh, I mean, I've of course, I haven't been a good enough carrot grower, I guess, until the last couple of years to benefit from it. But uh, now that we've got some nice carrots, it's just a wonderful tool to use in speeding up the work so much. One of the things that I learned to be afraid of in Mississippi was fire ants. 
How do you deal with fire ants? <laughs> we don't really deal with them. They, uh, you know, fire ants, they like the black plastic, so like we'll end up with a fair amount of strawberry plants that will turn into fire ant mounds. But uh, it's kind of like a rite of passage, I guess. Uh, working here, it's like <laughs> at some point you're going to realize underneath the leg of your jeans, you have got fire ants up to your thighs. And uh, so everybody that works here will end up probably riding around on the ground at some point or another, trying to get the fire ants off or pulling their socks and shoes off. I don't know. I've heard like boiling water or some people say diesel fuel, but we have not thought that was a good idea. Probably not an approved organic improved input. I think we've, uh, I think Amanda and the girls have put out like cornmeal. They put out some different things. But yeah, fire ants are just part of life. What's your favorite crop to grow, Will? It would be tomatoes. I love growing tomatoes. And Tupelo is the birthplace of Elvis. How has Elvis influenced your farm? <laughs> That's such an awesome question. I was uh, I was having dinner with some friends the other night, and we had a uh, I've been listening to we, we put up our Christmas tree on Sunday, and so I've been listening to the Elvis Christmas album, which is I would recommend listening to if you like Christmas music. I think Elvis gives the Elvis is like the anything is possible, you know. Like you look at Elvis and see what Elvis did uh, in the world, and he came from humble beginnings in Tupelo. Like, Elvis Elvis is inspiring. I don't think about him on a daily basis, but when I do stop and think about Elvis, I realize it's awesome to be from the same place that he came from. And I'm sure our Convention and Visitors Bureau would love to put that soundbite on their website. <laughs> All right. And finally, Will, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Uh, to keep records. Um, I have been a terrible record keeper, and so it would be great if I could look back at eight years of records and, and kind of have that to work from rather than my memory. Will, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Thank you. All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 148 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and that you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Reed. That's R-E-E-D. When I say notes for the show, what that includes, it includes a description that we talked about at the beginning of the show, but it also includes links for pretty much everything that we talked about that you can get a link for during this episode, and we do that for every episode. It also includes the transcripts. And the transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit osborneseed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. And by CoolBot, allowing you to build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a window air conditioning unit. Save $20 on your CoolBot when you visit farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash CoolBot. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. Now you can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your email inbox by signing up for my newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, if you like the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. 
And hey, when you talk to your sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. And I will do my best to get them on the show. Will Reed is on the show because of somebody's recommendation. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.